This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio. Each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. The show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher and me, Samuel Wan. Shane's not here tonight, but I am joined by Danny Fridberg. I'm at home in Sawyers Bay and he's not. He's at work at Otago Polytechnic. We both work there, but we didn't manage to both be there at the same time. How are we today, Danny? We're very well. New normal, more or less. Speaking with colleagues overseas, they see that we're very fortunate to be able to come to work, to spend some time with uh, other people's physical presence. So it could be worse. It's kind of a weird position we're in, isn't it? That that when we're particularly when we're talking to people overseas, that you, you don't want to feel too smug about it. You always feel almost feel ashamed about just having normal life, more or less. No conduct yeah so where did you grow up i grew up in israel uh born in lithuania actually in days of the soviet union but when i was quite young my family immigrated uh to israel as many other jews have uh and i've spent all of my childhood and my um early mature years as well um until 2014 when i immigrated to new zealand what was it like growing up there i've been there i've been there once I had a long, I have a long story to tell about, but I'm not going to tell now, about <laughs> about getting through Israeli security at Luton Airport. But um, I think they decided I was a threat. Yeah, uh, Israel has this way of not not being very hospitable towards um, non-Jewish uh, visitors sometimes. Yeah, but it was mm. a good place to grow up. It was, I think, more than good place. It were good times to grow up. Um, 1980s, very, very innocent and still small scale um, time. Pretty much like now in New Zealand, I guess. What did you want to be when you grew up? I never thought about it really in so many words. Um, I was pretty much a normal kid, played a lot of tennis. So I wanted, still thought I, would, I stand a chance. I wanted to be a pro player. But at high school, when everyone kept growing and I pretty much stopped growing, I realized this is not going uh, to get me there. So I started focusing on other things, normal things of, of youth. Uh, but it really, uh, after my military service, and perhaps we'll revisit that later, uh, when thinking what's next, I just came across in the, uh, in the university manual um, psychology studies. And I thought, oh, that could be interesting to do. Didn't know anything about it, but somehow I decided to leap into this uh, adventure. Maybe that was the first time I thought, well, this is not what I want to do, but this is the area I want to do it in. What were you hoping to achieve, other than it just looking interesting from the start? 
Um, I think, well, they say that psychology students, especially on the undergrad level, they have, you have two, two types of psychology students. So some are there to sort of treat themselves uh, and recover from all kinds of um, psychological problems that they may or may not have, uh, but they suspect they do. And the other one, the other type are the types of people who, who have this fantasy about being able to read people, uh, to be able even to manipulate them, so to speak. Um, and I guess I had a little bit of both at that stage. So what did you do armed with a psychology education? Um, finished my undergrads. There's nothing much you can do actually with an undergraduate uh, degree in psychology. Uh, but I knew I didn't want to go be a clinician or a therapist. So I started looking around. Um, and just then, uh, the first program in conflict resolution was opened um, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, so that was, it was kind of in the motion already in the US, a little bit in the UK. But other than that, it wasn't really a recognized qualification or even a field of, of study. Um, so I joined the second cohort of, of uh, that program at the Hebrew University and just thought, well, you know, actually using my background in psychology, but also getting to know a little bit more about conflict, a field that fascinated me always, but at the same time terrified me in terms of getting involved because um, you need to get your hands dirty when you, when you do conflict work. Um, and I guess you have, have this kind of love-hate relations with um, these type of topics. And it really drew me uh, towards it. You've mentioned military service. When I was in Israel, we were on a bus somewhere, and there was a person, a young soldier, he looked like he was about 18, asleep beside me on the bus mm. with a, I don't know what sort of gun it was, a scary gun pointed at me, yeah. and he was asleep. <laughs> that, the, the, that part of the culture just did my head in. Yeah, yeah. Lots of our international friends who visited Israel, of course, this has struck them as completely uh, unreasonable, illogical, um, surreal kind of reality that so many people are carrying essentially machine guns uh, on the streets and use it very casually as, you know, just something that hangs on your shoulder. Um, they don't, they're not actually treated as weapons as such when, when they're outside of their uh, military barracks. And yeah, this is a pretty normal reality for most of the Israeli youth who finish their high school studies, turn 18, and then just uh, enlist in the military service for, for three years for, for men, two years for women. Um, it's a very normal reality for Israel. It's a very abnormal reality for anyone else visiting Israel. Yeah. And did that influence your decision to, or your your, your career since then in conflict resolution? Um, not, not at that stage. Um, it was, um, you know, it, it was a very significant time in, you know, in forming my personality in many ways, my self-confidence and many other not so positive experiences as well. Uh, but it didn't go through to, to sort of develop my political consciousness or, any sense of direction I would later develop in life. Um, so when you when you serve in the military in Israel, you have three years of compulsory 
service in which you're full-time enrolled as a soldier and then pretty much until you're 40 years old so 20 more years you're uh, on reserve duty and then you just for a month a year in average you just step out of your normal civil life um, and enlist as a full-time soldier for a month um, doing practice doing um, uh, patrols standing in um, roadblocks the occupied territories um, and doing pretty much anything that a normal soldier would do in Israel and I guess this is when you have this very strong contrast between your civil life and your military life that this resonant this starts resonating with you and your life choices become much more conflicting and and it's becoming harder and harder to to uh, make peace between between them between them so was that postgrad study in conflict resolution that sounds like a really cool thing to do it is um I think it was it involved a lot of personal growth as well. Uh, I was never the best student. I wasn't very good at uh, reading materials, but I really embraced the practical side of it, the workshop part of mediation, negotiation training, and everything that involved you know actually communicating with other people. And this is where also I found my relative strength, I think. Um, and since this is not a real profession or occupation, you don't have career pathways, uh, certainly not 20 years ago, I had to sort of develop my own career pathways. Uh, I just kept in touch with my teachers and together with them, we developed projects and areas of practice that beforehand didn't really exist, certainly not in Israel. Uh, areas of practice such as you know, um, negotiation consult consultation to to private sector companies. Um, and by companies, I mean in the size of Vodafone or Spark in New Zealand. Um, engaging minist government ministries in public participation processes and consensus building, which is a multilateral complex type of mediation. Um, so developing these practices, many of them have come from the US in terms of at least the methodologies they entailed, adapting them to a local context with different political uh, landscape as well, and implementing them on the ground, getting buy-in from um, potential clients. So all of this was very novel at the time, and it was a great adventure because you really felt you're developing something new that was not there before. And that notion of it not being a profession, is, is there a fallback position for which where, where where do you get things like the code of ethics or the 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 professional practice from that you you use did you like fall back to the psychological the psychology ones well other people have done this work before us mostly in the us uh so we had some footsteps to follow um in principle conflict resolution practitioners draw from several areas of practice and uh the code of conduct uh is part of that as well so you have obviously lawyers because law is um provides a very strong uh, landscape in which conflict resolution practitioners operate but also social work and community workers and psychotherapists to a certain extent um and of course this all needs to be adapted and localized and um sometimes amended to fit local perspectives and cultural 
um, conventions, things like that. Uh, and it's very similar to the New Zealand context. So lots of the things that come from overseas, they need to be adopted to um, to express or to accommodate the bicultural context in which we operate here. And similarly in Israel, this is also a very divided, well, it's not similar to, the, to New Zealand, but it's, it is a very divided society with two predominant cultures dominating um, the cultural landscape, which are the Arab culture and the Western culture, with Jews coming actually from both cultures and the Palestinian citizens and residents come from mostly the Arab culture. When people talk about, you use lots of different terms, conflict resolution, you talked about um, mediation, dispute resolution, consensus building, because there's a whole a continuum of how, not competitive, how legal you know, there, there's the legal end of it, isn't there? That, that it's it's treated as this is a, a dispute that has to be worked out in legal terms through to much more mm-hmm. of a mediation approach. Well, uh, just give you a very very uh, short uh, overview of how this has developed. Um, most of the practitioners working in conflict resolution, actually globally, have legal background just because lawyers are the natural point of reference to people in disputes. Uh, Maybe couples who want to get a divorce, neighbors who sue each other because of different grievances they may have. Um, And and this is kind of um, almost prosaic reason why conflict resolution is seen as sitting within the legal uh, context. But actually, this is not a good enough reason. There are very good mediators and, and practitioners who come from psychotherapy or um, social work, community development, and even other backgrounds, uh, de- depending on the context, of course. Uh, more, uh, um, in a more relevant terms, perhaps, um, the, the courts were traditionally seen as the mechanisms that governments and, and states have put in place to resolve conflicts. So if in ancient Greece, um, you didn't have a criminal court. So the, the state was never a party to a lawsuit. Uh, in the modern state, the, the state has been able to sue people for violating criminal law, but actually civil law in which people are just conflicting between each other has still remained the most common uh, type of lawsuits in, in legal proceeding. And so um, the traditional way of resolving conflicts was through the court system. In the 19th starting from the 1930s in the U.S., but much more um, commonly in the 1970s, um, there was a realization that the courts have very partial capacity uh, to deal with conflicts, both because just shortage of of, uh, human power, resources, etc., but also because some conflicts are actually not very relevant to what the court can offer. Uh, For example, the court can offer reparations in money. Uh, the court will usually not make a party apologize to another party. There may be a suggestion coming to from a judge, but this is not some, something you can actually enforce. But sometimes this is actually about that, about losing face, about defamation of someone. And so restoring relations is not something that the court is, system actually is equipped to do. And so there, there started to be a transition to, uh, to seek alternative dispute resolution means. Uh, which mediation is just one of, but it's um, 
it's a it's a representing uh, approach to alternative dispute, re- dispute resolution, alternative to the court system. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have the Beatles. Hello, goodbye. Why this one? Um, I think it's something. It's it's a very playful uh, articulation of how different people are from each other. How um, how they see differently things. How they want different things. And when these don't sit together, it's uh, it starts very small, but it can actually grow up to be quite significant issues standing between them, dividing. You say- listening to Sustainable Lens, we're talking with Danny Fridberg. 
Danny, you're on the board of Dunedin Community Mediation. Have I got that right? Or the name yes. of it? Dunedin Community that? Mediation. Yes. What does what does that do? Um, community mediation is an area of practice of mediators. It's again a uh, a concept that was developed in the U.S. Um, in different landscape than New Zealand, in the sense that um, U.S. communities don't see government as responsible, and by government I mean local government as much as national government. They don't see it as being responsible to foster community life. So there's a lot of um, filling in the gaps that it's done on the ground by community members and um, just citizens. Um, And this was the landscape in which community mediation has been developed. Essentially, it's a model that says, let the community create its own, own means to address conflicts in the community. Um, sometimes it's supported by, um, by city councils or community centers, uh, not always. Um, it's usually based on a team of volunteer mediators who just assist their fellow residents of the same community, neighborhood, town to, uh, to solve their differences in a, through dialogue, through a mediated process. Um, this model has been, um, applied and um, and sort of operated in different contexts as well. Um, the Naden Community Mediation Center is con- currently the only community mediation center in New Zealand to be more or less sustainable, but certainly to keep operating. There were a few others who's, who just ran out of funding and um, I guess uptake was also not very strong. So the Naden Community Mediation Center offers free mediation services to the community of the Dunedin in things ranging from neighbors disputes to uh, any other um, conflicts in the community, as long as they're not criminal, uh, because for criminal um, offenses, we have other mechanisms um, to deal with. But for any civic uh, disputes that we find in the community, uh, the Linden Community Mediation Center is an address you can approach, ask mediators to be assigned and help people to uh, resolve these issues through dialogue and through restoration of, of relations. Are there principles by which those mediators work that we could perhaps should be adopting in our ordinary lives as a means to not end up at mediation? Um, this is a great question. This doesn't only apply to community mediation. It applies, I guess, to um, any kind of dispute resolution. I guess the long-term purpose and the, um, the, the moral value on behalf of which you operate as a conflict resolution practitioner is eventually to have people acquire the tools and, and skills needed to be able to go around in the world without having third parties to in- intervene. So, um, again, going a little bit back to, to research and scholarship, but I'll go back later to, to the practice of it. I think the entire um, world of conflict resolution has based itself on very strong empirical evidence uh, from research in psychology, sociology, international relations, and other disciplines that essentially people that are caught up in a conflict most often 
lack the tools to resolve these conflicts on their own, peacefully, I mean, of course. Um, and this results in, in people uh, who are situated in conflict to, um, to keep escalating these cycles uh, of hostility and eventually violence uh, in a way that's destructive to everyone. Um, so conflict resolution is, is a um, discipline, as a profession, assumes that while people have the potential eventually to, um, to be able to constructively resolve conflict and later on to create a good enough communication that is able to avoid conflicts or at least manage them in a productive manner, to start with, they need some sort of third party intervention. This intervention can be such as mediation. So a third party who actually sits in the room uh, figuratively or literally, uh, literally speaking, and helps the two conflicting parties to resolve whatever problems they have. Uh, or it can be through coaching, through training, um, through empowerment, um, in some other uh, context through development work that, that can help people upskill, empower them financially, economically, educationally, um, etc. But there is an intervention that needs to come from outside, usually, at least to equip the parties to be able to conduct this dialogue. But yes, eventually, the end point or the hope is that people who have gone through an intervention of sorts will be able in the future to conduct themselves more constructively in, uh, in conflict. Conflicts are unavoidable and they're not necessarily bad in the sense that they do make opportunities for growth, for development, for improvement even. Um, but we need to make sure that these conflicts don't become destructive for the people involved and the wider communities affected by them. What do you do with wicked problems? I mean, I, I imagine that lots of real problems in practice are wicked in that there's mm. multiple right answers, there's multiple perspectives and all of them are right and all those sorts of things. Right. It's, the solutions aren't black and white. Yeah. So th this takes us to a much broader perspective in, 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 uh, um, in context. When we talk about wicked problems, uh, and just to explain what these mean, uh, wicked problems are considered to be problems that are essentially unresolvable or un not necessarily resolvable. An example would be homelessness. You can't really resolve or solve homelessness in the world, um, and it's not so much about that. So addressing wicked problems would be, first of all, uncovering the perceptions and conventions and ways of thinking about it. So do we think of homelessness as a result of poor government welfare um, safety net, for example, or do we think of it as a result of people's laziness to go to work, right? And when you explore the landscape, the political landscape around the world, really, you'll see that there are very different views that underline these, this specific wicked problem, just to uh, keep it um, concrete, right? Um, the work of a conflict resolution practitioner, for example, will not be to solve homelessness as such. There are people and there are mechanisms and there are uh, ministries who have the mandate, they have the resources. It's not about that. It's about coming together to, first of all, mutual understanding of these different perspectives and which worldviews and value systems they come from and how we can create some sort of 
dialogue around them to bring us to a place in which we can collaborate over them. And this is really what it's about. It's about creating collaboration across competing values. So if my value as a citizen is that everyone deserves basic human needs, like housing, which I feel is a basic human need, but another person would say, well, everyone needs to work to be able to, to get that, okay? We'll need to start uncovering what these claims, what these value systems are actually about, where, where are we coming from, and how we can reach a common ground, not necessarily of agreement, but of understanding the conditions uh, in which any way to address this wicked problem should take place. So is that uh, techniques of, uh, of listening, genuine listening, empathy, those sorts of approaches? Um, in theory, yes. The practice of it is much more active, I would say. Of course, it depends on the context. Uh, it depends on if you work on the grassroots level, if you work on decision makers level, if you work on government level and, um, or um, government official level. Each, each of those levels have completely different types of discourse they engage in. Government officials, people who work at the Ministry of um, Employment or Housing, and this is a generalization, of course, but they don't necessarily daily reflect on the values that have brought them to do what they do. I'm hopeful that they do it every now and then, but practically not on a daily basis because they have, they have a lot of things to accomplish and to do. Um, on the grassroots level, when people are not necessarily accountable to solve homelessness in the world, they're more available to have these ethical discussions and to reach common ground that's not necessarily aimed at uh, fixing the world, but it can definitely aim at creating some joint initiatives on the community level. Uh, while with political leaders, this is the most complicated one because it's not only that they're not always connected to the actual grassroots level uh, and reality of homelessness, but they're also committed to their past um, uh, past campaigns and past public statements. And so even if through a process of dialogue of this sort, they are able to see other perspectives they haven't seen before, it's very hard for them sometimes publicly to move away from uh, these kind of positions that they've expressed in the past. Um, so it holds different types of challenges for practitioners working with them. Uh, but in either way, um, it's, it's not only about listening. Of course, you need to be listening. You need to be very, um, you need to be able to articulate for people in a way what they think or what they say in a way that expresses them better than they express themselves. Uh, this is one way that practitioners uh, use their uh, training to be able to bring people on board and sort of lower the shield defenses that very often come up when you start talking about things like wicked problems. I'm recognizing that you say we can't, quote, solve things like homelessness, but I'm wondering to what extent can we take the principles of the work that you're describing and scale it up? One of my favorite definitions of sustainability is ethics expanded in space and time. Mm. So do the principles and approaches that you're talking about scale up and i'm thinking not necessarily scaling up to you know 
international relations between countries, but mm-hmm. more things like, oh, let's go for climate change or intergenerational social injustices. Yeah. Which, which you're talking about competing values, and, and that does come down to competing values. Mm. There's really interesting um, scholarly work that's currently happening in the world that's trying to un- um, sort of uncover our systems of belief and how they can be changed. So in the U.S., for example, where you have a very strong climate change denial um, movement, there's a lot of work done at the universities trying to understand how can we shift the public opinion? How can we convince the unconvinced uh, that climate change is actually a thing and that this is a result of human action? Uh, And this is, for the most part, still uh, a very big riddle that um, answers are very very partial uh, to. So we can stay on that level and sometimes this work really becomes futile, I'm sorry to say. Um, Conflict resolution practice works on a different level, mostly on the level of needs. So it's not so much about what's right to do, it's what needs to be done. What do you need as a leader, as a policymaker, as a uh, an action agency of sorts or as a citizen what do you need what your family needs what your community needs that uh, can be um, sort of associated or connected or linked to these wicked problems so for example we don't have fortunately this kind of problem problem in New Zealand but a few years ago I was a uh, visiting scholar at the University of Oregon Oregon is known across the US as a country to which lots of homeless people uh, move just because it doesn't harass them the way many other states do. So they have a huge problem of homeless people. They don't necessarily, they're not beggars even. Sometimes many of them are doing it by choice, but it's not an easy sight to just walk through a park and see people just sleeping in in their sleeping bags under bridges. Um, And so if you work with the community uh, around these issues, the communities will not necessarily solve these, uh, uh, this issue. It, it will not be able to provide them with housing, for example. But you can definitely work on the community needs around that and how they can contribute to homeless people, how homeless people can even be integrated to a certain degree in the community in a way that's, first of all, mutually beneficial, but perhaps more importantly, not harmful to anyone. Um, and sort of start unmasking this uh, big fear of homeless people, this stigma of them being uh, drunk or um, junkies uh, or just lazy, uh, which is very common in the U.S. So it's not, again, it's not about resolving the, com- the conflict or the problem necessarily, but it's about helping people address it in a way that's productive to their life, to their needs, um, to what they hope to achieve in life. We've had on the show Batya Friedman, who developed values-based software development, I think it's called, uh, which is mm. based based on that same issue. It, it's their development at the University of Washington came from from that homelessness that happens on the gates of the mm. on the gates of the campus. There, one of the things that I'm always interested in is the approach that transition towns takes that we don't have to convince everybody we just need to get on with living a better life 
Um, and mm. if, if you don't want to be part of that, that's fine by us. To what extent do we just need to walk away from some things? We're not going to solve some conflicts. And I know you've done work at the really pointy end of that in the conscientious objectors, mm-hmm. where we're not going to come to a, yeah. a resolution. How do we manage yeah. that? Um, this is a good example because, um, so j- just to, uh, a full disclosure, I was, uh, at some point I've become a conscientious objector myself, uh, to military service in the Israeli context, of course. And I think conscientious objectors are very good examples of people that take a step towards the solution. Doesn't mean that they solve it. Conscientious objectors are extremely marginalized all over the world. We're talking about um, roughly 0.03% of combat soldiers who um, who, be, who become conscientious objectors. And, and just to clarify, there are two types of conscientious objectors. One of them is what we call general conscientious objectors. These are pacifist people who will not enlist in the military. Uh, my interest uh, in, in my PhD research uh, and my personal life was on the different type of conscientious objectors that are called classified as um, selective conscientious objectors. So these are not people who object in principle to military service, but they object to what they feel is an unjust war. So um, it's not that they refuse to hold weapons in their hands or to protect their family as such, but they refuse to be in the service of an unjust military operations in the Israeli-Palestinian case such as the Israeli occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. Um, So conscientious objectors, they make a statement. Um, Sometimes they take it public as well, especially in times of of need of military clashes, but they don't expect that their action will actually solve the problem and the occupation shift dramatically the public opinion. Um, It's more about their personal conviction that their action needs, first of all, to be done, of course, but second, to be heard. Um, and whatever the effect will be uh, on the wider society. Um, and this is a very good example of people who don't try to solve a problem, but they just try to act conscientiously and ethically about it. And do so in a way that is counter to the prevailing society and laws, I presume. Not only the society and law, but to their actual uh, upbringing. When you grow up in a militarized society, such as the one we have in Israel, but not only, um, you are groomed and socialized towards your military service from your very early childhood. I'm talking kindergarten years. Um, you have memorial days. You have uh, independent days that are very militaristic. Um, you have soldiers around you. you. You met one in the bus. Soldiers actually come to schools to tell about military service, to um, offer some opportunities to you, for youth to volunteer to the most uh, combat and special units. Um, so this is part of your daily life almost um, in Israel, as a Jew in Israel at least. And so turning your back to it or refusing to, uh, to continue to serve in the military is not only, uh, doesn't only, only require you to face your society and your and the law in the country, but actually a lot of your own convictions that in the first place made you to uh, to join the military, to serve as a combat soldier. Um, so the, the process here is as much internal as it is external. Do they have a 
a process by which you can opt out gracefully? Um, there's the hard way and there's the easy way. So the hard way is that Israel is signed as many, most of other uh, Western countries on the international conventions of, um, I, I can't remember exactly the, 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 the name of it in English, but it has a, uh, it's, it's an international convention about military law, basically, that has a chapter that allows people to declare themselves as conscientious objectors for pacifist reasons. Um, and Israel, as a signed party on this con uh, covenant, does have what they call a conscientious uh, committee of the military um, with, I think, only one civilian uh, representative on on the committee all the others are uh, military personnel um, and this committee um, reviews requests of uh, prospect or active soldiers to be exempt from military duty due to conscientious reasons um, how to access those committee how to apply for an exemption is not publicized anywhere it's a word of mouth really um, there are some NGOs who help consult people on how to approach it, how to even find it. Um, and it's very hard to actually get this, uh, get the approval of this committee because they have this very uh, tricky way of trying to find your own internal um, contradictions. So if you walk on the street and you see a uh, Palestinian terrorist running towards you with a knife and you have, uh, would you shoot him or, or, hurt him or not. And if you say, well, I need to protect myself, then you're not a pacifist, right? So you need to be absurdly um, anti-violence person to be able to exempt. Um, so this is really the hard way and very uncommon way to get exemption for military service. The other one, which is much easier today, is that since we're talking really about very, very small numbers and the military socialization is really working in the Israeli society, so they don't have to deal with masses of conscientious objectors. Um, what the military in Israel has decided unofficially, it's not written anywhere, it's not a, an official policy, but the soldiers, uh, we're mostly talking about reserve duty soldiers who, who don't serve for full years, but just sporadically, if they declare any willing to object, they just don't call them to active service. Anymore. So you resolve the issue because you have no objectors. If you're not called for uh, active service, you cannot object, right? So issue is gone. And this is the easier way today to be uh, exempted from military service. Um, if numbers go up, yes, probably we'll have another um, rise in, in records of conscientious objectors, but currently they just uh, don't exist on record anywhere. Let's take... Dire Straits, Brothers in Arms. I think I know why this one, but why this one? Um, when I did my PhD uh, research, I interviewed uh, conscientious objectors like myself, people with military um, combat uh, background. And I think this uh, understanding of where we're coming from, what we've gone through, um, was a very strong bonding um, um, component to these conversations, which allowed me really to to get very uh, intimate uh, detail about their life stories. Um, and something about the song always reminds me that um, 
there is a bond between people who have gone through it that other people will find very hard to understand. So Danny, I have some questions to end the show with. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, I'm working on it right now, so it's not a success yet. Um, but I'm developing a program conflict resolution here at the Tago Politic that I hope will be first of its kind in New Zealand uh, and many other places as well. Um, so not blowing my own horn, but um, 
I've brought really, really cool and knowledgeable people on board that uh, really make it, I think, very attractive and um, unique program. Um, it will integrate Mari knowledge, international knowledge, very strong attachment to the ground, to the practice. Um, yeah, so not a success yet, but work in progress. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are mm. in the team. What's the superpower that's got you into the mansion? Listening, most of everything else, I think. Um, just being able to, to understand what people want to tell me better than in them, in the first instance. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Um, at times, I, I'm a bit concerned with that word. Uh, activists, tend, in my, in my experience, tend to put actions before thoughts or reflection, which might get dangerous at times. Um, and I had, in, in many occasions, uh, as a conflict resolution practitioner, I had some clashes with activists that, although we shared completely the identical worldview in terms of our values, in terms of what we believe the world should look like, the ways to get there were significantly different. Um, so I'm a bit cautious with calling myself an activist in that respect. If you could wave a magic wand and have a miracle occur tomorrow morning, what would you have happen? I really like how the word, word kindness um, used by, by Jacinda in New Zealand is catching up. Um, and I have my own criticism as, as much as any other one about government policies and about actions, but I think bringing people on board around this idea of just kindness um, to each other, to, to ourselves even, um, a magic wand would make many other people in the world sort of um, take down their cynical shields and just say, well, kindness, it's actually not a good way to, to conduct yourself in the world. Do you have any ideas of a practical action that we could do towards that miracle? Um, I think getting everyone's life better. You can be kind when you're not um, soaked in your own victimhood, in your own misery or uh, suffer. When your life are just a little bit better, you, you appreciate what you have. Um, you can look at the world in a less angry and kinder way. Lots of that victimhood that we've seen over the last few years hasn't been by victims. It's actually been by people that have got relative privileges. Mm. Mm. Any ideas what we can do about that? Well, you know, victimhood is a very efficient and effective defense mechanism. It justifies pretty much any action you want to take. Um, and you stop being victim really when you're opening up to, um, you know, to embrace diversity, to embrace other people, to embrace um, empathy uh, to others. It's, it's another wicked problem. You know, it's not something that can easily be done. Um, but um, I always feel that New, Zealand, New Zealanders are very fortunate to, um, to have so far um, this room, this room physically, this room mentally, to, to be kind to each other, to, to express sympathy. And you see, it's not, don't see it across the board, but you can definitely see it's a dominant um, um, concept in New Zealand. So coming from a place that people are very defensive, they keep to their own kind, they're 
they're living in very condensed, physically condensed conditions. Um, just to, I, I always explain to, when I give lectures about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that in Israel and Palestine, about three times the population of New Zealand are living on two thirds of the area size of Otago. So just by grasping on these numbers, it explains the density and that be, before we go to you know, mutual bloodshed and ethnic and religious um, uh, differences that, that drive the, this conflict. So just being able for people to just get a little bit of space, get a little bit of, of, um, of breath that they can take without stepping on anyone else's toes can make a lot of difference. What's the biggest challenge or perhaps opportunity you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Um, we'll definitely get this, uh, this program approved and up and running. Um, I think this can make a great contribution to, to New Zealanders, actually to uh, internationals as well. We have international agenda there um, as well. Um, but, you know, most than uh, anything else, just keep doing what we do here. Uh, I really like that people make a better world, or people make a better world is OP's Taco Polytechnics, um, not only vision, it's kind of a motto. Um, so just keeping making a better world. Yeah, It's a better way of saying what we developed in about 2004. Our, um, our graduates may think and act as a sustainable practitioner. I'm happy that they've, mm. that they've reworked the words, but it's the, the ethos is still there. Yes, definitely. Do you have a go-to definition of sustainability? Um, I see it as uh, a way of independence, of not becoming a burden on anything. And by anything, I mean on resources, on others. Uh, just keep the good things going just because they have the capacity and the resources to do them on their own. Um, and not taking away from, from others from from nature, from future generations. This is my understanding of uh, sustainability. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? I'm not usually very good at giving advices to other people. I'll just start by saying that. Um, but um, learning more things, um, acquiring more skills, reflecting on what you do and trying to do it better um, it's very easy to go in this place saying, well, I've been doing the same thing for many years. It's either working or not working for me, but um, I couldn't be bothered um, sort of upskilling uh, myself, upgrading myself. Um, there's a whole wild world there of, of knowledge, of, of excitement. And the more I learn, the more I just want to learn more. Sounds like good advice to me. And we look forward to that program. What's it called? It's a graduate diploma in conflict resolution, and hopefully we'll be launching it next year. We shall have to get you back and find out how that's going. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. generation on radio each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective through their sustainable lens 
We broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Thursday evening at 7 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. We are also podcast and have a searchable archive on sustainablelens.org. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Samuel Mann and Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I have been joined today by Danny Fridberg at Otago Polytechnic. That was Sustainable Lens. We hope you enjoyed the show. Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.